Okay, thank you. Um, so, my sort of guiding question is going to be this. What is the epistemological relevance of Husserlian phenomenology? Husserl offers interesting views on a number of substantive epistemological issues, but he also makes very strong meta-epistemological claims. The most radical is that epistemology is possible only as pure phenomenology. This amounts to the claim that epistemological problems are solvable only by means of pure phenomenological cognition, by which Husserl means roughly reflective cognition of the essences of one's conscious experiences, construed not as mental states of a human being, but as pure experiences belonging to a pure or transcendental ego. Husserl seeks to justify this claim by an argument that I shall call the argument from the problem of transcendence, or the transcendence argument for short. The first premise of the argument states that the central problem of epistemology is the problem of transcendence, the problem of the possibility of transcendent cognition. I'm going to come back to what transcendent cognition is in a minute. The second premise has it that the problem of transcendence cannot be solved by means of transcendent cognition, and I shall refer to this as the no transcendence constraint. The third premise states that the only form of non-transcendent cognition is pure phenomenological cognition. And from this, it follows that the central problem of epistemology, and by extension, any other epistemological problem, can be solved only by means of pure phenomenological cognition. So what I want to do here is to contribute to evaluating this argument. And I want to do that by assessing Husserl's most important attempt to justify its second premise, the no transcendence constraint. Now, let's begin by taking a closer look at the problem of transcendence and the notion of uh, transcendent cognition involved. On Husserl's uh, general conception of cognition, cognitions are conscious experiences that satisfy three conditions. First, as distinct from mere sensations, cognitions are intentional in the sense of being of or directed on objects or on something. And that on which a cognition is directed, Husserl calls its intentional object, by which he means not a particular kind of object, but simply that on which the cognition is directed, whatever it might be, a physical object, an experience, a fiction, a state of affairs, or some other thing. Second, as distinct from imaginative experiences say, cognitions are doxic or positional, zetsender, in the sense of involving a positing of their intentional object, roughly a belief to the effect that the ex object exists or has being. And third, as distinct from positing experiences like lucky guesses, cognitions are rational in the sense that the positing involved is motivated by epistemic grounds, grounds providing epistemic justification for that positing. Now, to see what sort of specifically characterizes transcendent cognition, note must be taken of a fundamental tenet of Husserl's theory of epistemic justification, namely his idea that the originary givenness of an intentional object constitutes an epistemic ground for positing it. 
Originary givenness is a way of being present to consciousness. For an object to be originarily given is for it to be present in the flesh, as Husserl puts it, as opposed to, say, being imagined or represented by some other object. According to Husserl, all basic categories of objects have their own specific way of being originarily given. But objects can be originarily given to different degrees, however, where the degree of givenness is determined by the extent to which their features are present in the flesh. If all the features of an object are present in the flesh, the object is said to be adequately given. And if only some of its features are so given, the object is said to be inadequately given. Now, whether or not an object can be adequately given depends on its general kind. Physical objects, for instance, are origin originarily given in outer perception. But they can never be adequately given because, being spatial, they will always be perceived as having features that are not present in the flesh. Features pertaining to the sides of the objects, or object that are hidden from the perceiver's current perspective. So, uh, features pertaining to the rear or the sides or the insides of the object. By contrast, conscious experiences, which are originarily given in imminent perception, according to Husserl, can be adequately given because they are not spatial and will therefore not be perceived as having any hidden features. Now, according to Husserl, all forms of originary givenness constitute epistemic grounds for positing objects of the relevant kinds. So, the outer perceptual givenness of a physical object and the imminent perceptual givenness of an experience both provide justification for positing the respective objects given. Different forms of originary givenness provide justification to different degrees, however with the degree of justification provided by an instance of givenness being determined by its degree of givenness. Specifically, the adequate givenness of an object guarantees its being, according to Husserl, and thereby constitutes an apodictic or indefeasible epistemic ground for positing it. By contrast, the inadequate givenness of an object does not guarantee its being, and so constitutes only a relative or defeasible ground for positing it. Now, let's return to the concept of transcendent cognition, whose possibility the problem of transcendent concerns. On Husserl's most explicit um, specification of the concept, transcendent cognition is cognition of non-adequately given objects. More precisely, a transcendent cognition is a positing motivated by an epistemic ground other than the adequate givenness of the object positive. As a rule, however, Husserl holds that adequate givenness constitutes not just A, but the only kind of indefeasible epistemic ground. And it seems clear that the supposed reason why the possibility of positings motivated by grounds other than adequate givenness is problematic is that such grounds are defeasible and that it is obscure how defeasible grounds can provide justification. But this suggests that on what would appear to be Husserl's ultimate specification of the concept, 
Transcendent cognition is diffusible cognition. Positing's motivated by diffusible grounds. Given this, the problem of transcendence could also be specified as the problem of how diffusible cognition is possible. I should emphasize that the problem is precisely how diffusible cognition is possible, not whether it's possible. We could put this by saying that the problem is not a problem of justification, but of clarification. The task it poses is not to justify that there can be transcendent or diffusible cognition, but to make intelligible or clarify what such cognition essentially involves. Now, as noted, Husserl holds that any attempt to solve the problem of transcendence is subject to the no transcendence constraint. Husserl also states this constraint as the demand that solving the problem of transcendence requires an epoche of transcendent cognition, by which he means a refraining from making use of such cognition. Now, to make use of a cognition here means, roughly, to base the solution to a problem on the presumed veridicality of that cognition. Suppose that I want to decide whether I will fit in a particular bed. Were I to base my decision on my thought that I'm six feet tall, I would be making use of that thought. For in so doing, I would be basing my solution to the problem on the presumed truth of that thought. Now, suppose instead that I want to decide what I'm currently thinking. If I conclude by reflection that I think that I'm six feet tall, then I wouldn't be making use of that thought in the relevant sense. For in that case, I wouldn't be basing my solution to the problem on the presumed truth of the thought, <coughs> on the presumed truth of my reflective thought about it. And given this, the no transcendence requirement amounts to the claim that in solving the problem of transcendence, one may never make use of transcendent or defeasible cognitions in the sense of basing one's conclusions on their supposed veridicality. And this entails that the problem can be solved, if at all, only by means of non-transcendent cognition, cognition based on adequate or indefeasible justificatory grounds. As noted, Russell claims that phenomenological cognition, or pure phenomenological cognition, is the only form of non-transcendent cognition, and hence the only form of cognition allowed for by the no-transcendence requirement, uh, constraint. But I won't consider that claim here. Instead, I want to consider Husserl's most important argument for the constraint itself, which argument I shall call the circularity argument. According to this argument, one cannot solve the problem of transcendence by means of transcendent cognition, because any attempt to do so would presuppose that the problem has already been solved and would consequently be viciously circular. Now, attempting to solve the problem of transcendence by means of transcendent cognition would plausibly be circular in some sense. But why should it be viciously so? If the problem were a problem of justification, the answer would be straightforward. Using transcendent cognition to establish that there can be transcendent cognition would clearly be presupposing that the problem to be solved 
has already been solved. But, as we've seen, the problem is not a problem of justification, but of clarification. And it's not obvious why, in using transcendent cognition to clarify the possibility of transcendent cognition, one would be presupposing the clarity of that possibility. Now, the following claim of Husserl's suggests a possible reason why this should be so. Husserl says, if I'm confused, then I do not actually have any right to make use of what is presented as valid, in particular when it is precisely this confusion that I want to eliminate. One way of construing this claim would be to take it as an endorsement of the following principle. A cognition can be used in solving a problem only if the possibility of cognitions of its kind is clear. Given this principle, using transcendent cognition to solve the problem of transcendence would be viciously circular. For, by the principle, one can use transcendent cognition to solve the problem of transcendence only if the possibility of transcendent cognition is clear. But to solve the problem of transcendence is precisely to clarify that possibility. So, given this principle, one can use transcendent cognition to solve the problem of transcendence only if the problem has already been solved. The principle is highly counterintuitive, however, leading to an extreme form of scepticism. For given the plausible assumption that few, if any, cognitions are at present clear with regard to their possibility, it entails that few, if any, cognitions may at present be used as problem-solving means, and hence that few, if any, problems can at present be solved. Another way of construing the Confucian claim is to take it as an endorsement of a more restricted principle, which has it that a cognition can be used to remove a lack of clarity only if the possibility of cognitions of its kind is clear, in the sense of not itself suffering from the lack of clarity to be removed. Several passages in Husserl, which I won't quote, suggest that this is in fact the principle that Husserl means to endorse. But there are also systematic reasons for taking Husserl to commit only to this restricted principle. Because like the general principle, this principle entails that using transcendent cognition to solve the problem of transcendence would be viciously circular. But unlike that principle, the restricted principle would be invulnerable to the extreme scepticism charge. For this principle disallows the problem-solving use of cognitions only under very specific circumstances namely when it comes to removing a lack of intelligibility pertaining to the possibility of those cognitions themselves. Now, assuming that Husserl does endorse the restricted principle, why does he do so? From several passages, it appears that his reason turn on the idea that attempting to use a cognition to remove a lack of clarity pertaining to the possibility of cognitions of its kind would raise anew the problem to be solved. That it would do so seems undeniable. The question, though, is why this should be unacceptable. As far as I know, Husserl doesn't explicitly address this question. But one option would be to appeal to the following principle, which says that any problem-solving use of cognition that raises anew the problem to be solved is idle. This principle would provide a reason why problem-solving uses of cognitions that raise anew the problem to be solved would be unacceptable. But it's also counterintuitive, implying as it does, that certain uses of cognition must be idle that doesn't seem to have to be so. 
Consider the use of phenomenological cognition in clarifying the possibility of intentional experiences. That is, in making intellig intelligible what it means for an experience to be intentionally directed on something. Phenomenological cognitions are intentional experiences, namely reflective experiences directed at the essence of pure intentional experiences. So any use of phenomenological cognition to clarify the possibility of intentional experiences would, in a sense, raise in you to the question to be solved. And by the proposed principle, it would therefore be idle. But this seems wrong. And it would clearly be, clearly be unacceptable to Husserl, who not only holds that phenomenological cognition is a means for clarifying the possibility of intentional experiences, but holds that it is the only means for doing so. Assuming, therefore, that some problem-solving uses of cognitions that raise anew the problem to be solved are not idle, why should this be so? A natural answer is that they raise the problem not in its original form, but in a modified form that makes it more tractable. Consider again the use of phenomenological cognition to clarify the possibility of intentional experiences. This might, and on Husserl's view, would yield the result that the, the intentional directedness of intentional acts is a function of their having what Husserl calls a sense. But if so, the problem to which the use of phenomenological cognition would give rise would not simply be the problem of how experiences could be directed on something. It would, rather, be the problem of how experiences can be directed on something by virtue of having a sense. And this form of the problem would, arguably, be more manageable because more specific than the first. This may suggest that the problem facing the general principle of idleness could be met by restricting the principle as follows. Any problem-solving use of cognitions that raises anew the problem to be solved in the sense of simply re-racing it in its original form is idle. There are passages suggesting that this is in fact the principle by reference to which Husserl means to establish the restricted principle of clarity. Um, and the principle is also prima facie plausible. If using a cognition to solve a problem resulted only in re-racing the problem in its original form, then so using that cognition would clearly be futile. Unlike the general principle of idleness, it's also invulnerable to the counterexample just rehearsed, because it allows the problem-solving uses of cognitions that raise in you the problem to be solved need not be idle as long as the problem is raised in a modified form. And it thereby allows that using phenomenological cognition to clarify the possibility of intentional experiences may be fruitful. Now, this invulnerability comes at the price, though. For it means that, despite Husserl's apparent implicit assertions to the contrary, the principle cannot replace the general principle of idleness in the considered argument for the restricted principle of clarity. The role of the general principle of idleness in that argument was to provide a reason why problem-solving uses of cognition that raise in you the problem to be solved should be unacceptable. The reason being that they would be idle. But because the restricted principle of idleness allows that such uses of cognition need not be idle, it cannot fill that role. I take it, therefore, that the considered argument for the restricted principle of clarity fails. Of course, this doesn't mean that one might not succeed in supporting the principle by means of a different argument. But the usefulness of trying to do so would be questionable. 
Well, the principle is vulnerable to considerations similar to those it used against the general principle of idleness. According to the restricted principle of clarity, a cognition cannot be used to remove a lack of clarity from which the possibility of cognitions of its own kind suffers. This entails, among other things, that one cannot use a priori cognition to clarify the possibility of a priori cognition. Arguably, however, the possibility of a priori cognition cannot be clarified without the use of a priori cognition. This, at any rate, is Hulse's view. Like the possibility of any other kind of cognition, the possibility of a priori cognition can be clarified only by means of phenomenological cognition, he holds. But phenomenological cognition, being cognition of the essences of conscious experiences, is itself a species of a priori or eidetic cognition. But by the restricted principle of clarity, then, phenomenological cognition cannot be used in clarifying the possibility of a priori cognition. For Husserl, this would entail that the possibility of a priori cognition cannot be clarified at all, which, given his view of the task of epistemology, would in turn entail that epistemology is impossible. Now, I believe the foregoing provides strong reason to think that Husserl's circularity argument for the no transcendence constraint fails. And although I cannot argue this here, I also think there's good reason to think that none of his additional arguments succeed, thus leaving the constraint unsupported. As noted, the no transcendence constraint is the most crucial premise of what I call the transcendence argument. Husserl's attempt to show that epistemology is possible only as pure phenomenology. Um, so failure to establish the constraint would entail the, also entail the failure of that argument. On the face of it, this might leave, uh, seem to leave open the possibility of reaching the argument's conclusion that epistemology is possible only as pure phenomenology by a different route, one not relying on the constraint. I don't think this possibility obtains, however. For, absent the constraint, there would be no reason why pure phenomenological cognition, as the supposedly only form of non-transcendent cognition, would be required to solve the problem of transcendence. Husserl, at any rate, proposes, uh, never proposes any reason why this should be so. Where would this leave us with respect to the epistemological relevance of Husserlian phenomenology? Failure to establish that pure phenomenological cognition is required for solving the problem of transcendence and any other epistemological problem wouldn't entail that Husserl's substantive theory of cognition is epistemologically irrelevant. But once that meta-epistemological claim is given up, given up, however, any epistemological relevance his theory cognition might have can no longer underwrite the epistemological relevance of pure phenomenology. For there would then no longer be any reason why, as Husserl insists, we should have to construe the theory as based on pure phenomenological cognition, as Husserl insists we should, and not rather on phenomenological, uh, phenomenologically, uh, phenomenolo phenomenological psychology, psychological cognition, sorry, which is a species of transcendent cognition. Thank you.